I'm Michael Morell, and this is a special episode of Intelligence Matters. This week, my colleague from Beacon Global Strategies, Michael Allen, interviews me on the full range of national security issues as we start 2023. Before joining Beacon as a managing partner, Michael served as the staff director of the House Intelligence Committee. And before that, he served on President George W. Bush's National Security Council staff. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Michael, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Michael. I think um, terrific idea to do this as a podcast, you know, turn the tables on me, uh, so to speak. Um, So I'm really looking forward to this. All right, this will be fun. All right, let's start with Russia, Ukraine. What are you seeing on the ground today and what do you see in the year ahead? Yeah, Michael, I think it makes sense to break the answer to this question into into two buckets, a tactical bucket and a strategic bucket. But before I do that, I want to give credit here to one particular source of information on the war. You know, I read a lot on this issue but by far the thing that I find most informative and most useful to be the daily report on the war that's put out by the Institute for the Study of War. It really is an amazing example of the high quality of analysis that's possible with open source. So I just want to give them credit because a a lot of what forms my, my view comes from them. So first, tactically, situation on the ground today is a stalemate. Both Russian and Ukrainian forces lack the resources to move forward, to conduct an offensive. Russia has not had any significant victories since early July. And for weeks, they have been digging in, you know, literally building defensive positions, preparing for trench warfare. They are not going to be moving forward anytime soon, anywhere. You know, for its part, Ukraine is awaiting the supply of new and more advanced weapon systems that have been promised by the West that I think could change the deadlock in individual locations. But, you know, I don't think it's going to be enough to change the stalemate across the entire battlefield. So that's kind of where we are tactically. I think the other thing 
to note tactically, and everyone here knows this, right, is that the Russians continue to hammer Ukrainian infrastructure targets multiple times a week. All of that designed, right, to deny heat, to deny electricity, to deny water to the Ukrainian people. And and I'd make two points on these attacks. One, they're intentional attacks on civilian targets designed to break the will of the Ukrainians to fight. They are, in my view, I don't know if it's, you know, from a legal perspective, but in my view, they're war crimes. And they need to be called out as such by Western governments and by the Western media. And we need to use them, right, to embarrass any country that is supporting Russia in any way, in my view. And then number two, they're not working. And I don't think they're going to work. They are not going to break Ukraine's will to fight. If anything, they're strengthening Ukraine's will to fight. I think this is just another example of a huge mistake by Vladimir Putin in this war. Yeah. Strategically, and I don't think, you know, from a strategic perspective, and I don't think, Michael, this is too strong of a statement, the outcome of this war is really in the hands of the West. So if you want to guide, I think, to any big inflection points in 2023, watch the West and its approach to Ukraine. And why do I say that? You know, if the West withdrew its support for some reason, and I don't think that's going to happen, um, and I want to emphasize that, but if we did, Russia could and probably would still win this war, including achieving its overall objective of turning Ukraine into a vassal state. Um, so Russia could still win, right, if we pulled back our support. You know, and from a policy perspective, we just got to make sure that that doesn't happen. We need to make sure that we hold together the political support here in the U.S. and hold together our allies internationally. On the other hand, you know, if we continue to only slowly increase the sophistication of the weapons we're providing to Ukraine, you know, call that the kind of the base case, that's where we've been, let's, let's assume that's going to continue to happen, you know, the fighting is likely to go on for some time, in my view. It's going to at least drag on well into the second half of this year, if not the entire year. But, and this is the you know, last point I'll make here. But if the West, if the coalition gave the Ukrainians what the Ukrainians are asking for, namely fighters, tanks, long range precision weapons, you know, President Zelensky's entire list, I believe that Ukraine could retake all of its territory currently held by the Russians, including Crimea. And in the process, right, we would demonstrate to the world that the West is going to lead and make sure that violations of sovereignty like this, you know, will not stand. And the world would be a whole lot better place, you know, if that's the outcome. And just, just one more sentence here, which I think is really important. I want to remind everyone that what's happening in Ukraine is the biggest military conflict in Europe since World War II, right? And that's quite a statement. Yeah. Michael, I might have called it incremental progress by the Ukrainians, but I would have come out at the same place, which is that the Biden administration is seemingly not willing to give so many weapons or give everything that Zelensky wants. I mean, why not? 
you've served with many of these people in the Obama administration. What's going on? Yeah, let me say you know a few sentences and then turn it back on you because because you look at this as closely as I do. You know, I don't know is the answer. You know, I don't sit at the table obviously with these people, and quite frankly, I don't talk to anyone regularly in the administration about this. You know, my guess would be it's a concern about escalation. It's a concern about nuclear use by the Russians. And it's a concern that if Russia collapse, if Russia collapses, we could be in a much worse place. My guess is those are the kind of thoughts that are going on, kind of discussion that's going on as they make decisions to kind of slow roll things. I think that's a mistake. I think we're over worrying those things. And I think if you want to end this war sooner and you want to leave both countries in a better place, you would provide the weapons that the Ukrainians need to end this thing, is my sense. But I'd love you know to hear your view. Well, my sense is that they're playing not to lose. They, The Biden administration is playing not to lose and that they are being way too cautious in not transferring over what we need, what the Ukrainians need. We're just now apparently getting around to sending a lot more infantry fighting vehicles. But to me, that's a little late. And over and over, you hear of requests, denials, delays, eventual acceptance, and then it takes a long time to incorporate it into the battlefield. So the Ukrainians are doing great. It's hard to say the Biden administration has been weak, but it seems like they are really talking themselves out of a lot of things for fear of World War III, which is what always ends up in the newspaper is what Biden's concerns about. You're absolutely right, right? They deserve credit for what they've done, right? They deserve credit for standing up to Russia and saying no, right? They deserve credit for leading the coalition and that supports Ukraine today. The Obama administration didn't do that in 2014 when Russia grabbed Crimea. Quite frankly, the Bush administration didn't do that when Russia invaded Georgia. So, you know, they deserve credit for standing up and saying no, but I would like to see them be more aggressive in providing the weapons that Ukraine needs, right? Whenever I see them make a decision to send a new weapon system, I ask myself, why didn't that come two months ago? Why didn't that come four months ago, right? I ask myself that question. Exactly. Well, you mentioned nuclear weapons. And of course, if we believe that Putin would use them, that is a great reason to sort of self-deter. But after his initial round of threats, I'd say three months ago, most analysts looked at this and said, you know what? I don't think he's going to use it because why would he use it on his own battlefield that he claims is Russian territory? And he would lose significant diplomatic ground with the Indians and the Chinese. So I've sort of seen the nuclear weapons specter decline. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. So on the use of, we're, we're talking about tactical nuclear weapons here, right? On their use, you know, the Russian rhetoric has died down. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, one is the public rebuke of Russia on this issue from China during Chinese President Xi's meeting with German Chancellor Schultz in early November. And I think that was a very important thing for China to have done. And second, and this is only a guess, um, I don't know for sure, is that we, probably in the form of Bill Burns sitting down with his Russian counterpart, or through Jake Sullivan to his Russian counterpart, sent Russia a very strong message on how we would respond 
to a Russian use of nuclear weapons and what they heard gave them pause. So I think probably those two things, you know, have changed the dynamic here a little bit with regard to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And, you know, that is a very good thing. Now, I'd say the probability has gone down, but it's not zero. You know, I can still imagine situations where Putin might feel completely cornered and feel he has no other choice. But I do think, I do think the threat has gone down. And there's some suggestion from the administration on occasion that, at least in the newspapers, that if the Ukrainians tried to seek or had some success in Crimea, that might provoke Putin. Do you credit that at all? So certainly Crimea is, is you know, the most important piece of what he currently holds to Putin, right? Certainly. But all the reasons that you talked about, right, for why the use of nuclear weapons would be a mistake to Russia, right, stand in Crimea as they stand in eastern Ukraine. It would make Russia a pariah state. The Chinese would undoubtedly break with the Russians over the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Their military effectiveness, right, unless you use many, many of them, are highly questionable, right? So the value you get out of it is is not significant. You probably draw NATO into the war in Ukraine, right? Not into Russia, but into Ukraine in some way. So there's huge downsides for Putin. And those those are true in Crimea as they are anywhere else in Ukraine. All right, last question on Ukraine. Can you comment a, a little bit on Putin's political position? Yeah. So I think, you know, not surprisingly, Putin is highly attuned to his own politics. I think sometimes it's easy for us to sit back and look at authoritarians and say they don't have to worry about their politics, right? But they do, just like any politician anywhere. But what he's attuned to is not what most of us would think, right? Most of us would think he's attuned to anti-war voices in Russia. No, he's attuned to and reacts to critiques from the ultra-nationalists, right? From those, those folks who have supported him for years and who actually want him to be more aggressive in Ukraine, you know, not less. He did the partial mobilization several months ago in response to their critiques, and he angered right, the general population by doing so. And I think also the, the regular missile and drone attacks that we're now seeing on Ukrainian infrastructure are largely in response to the critiques of the ultra-nationalists. He's afraid of them. He's trying to manage them by responding to these critiques and by trying to co-opt them at the same time. So he's asked them, believe it or not, he's asked them for a monthly report. You know, I think it's an effort to bring them under the tent. So he's he's highly attuned to his politics and to these ultra-nationalists in particular. I think the last thing I'd say is I think it's very hard to say if Putin is any is under any near-term political threat. You know, I don't see it, but 33 years as a CIA analyst taught me that it's very hard to see successful coups coming, right? If we, if the US intelligence community sees a coup coming, it probably means the troubled leader does as well and can move to stop it. You know, it's the unseen coup that gets you both as a leader and as an outside analyst. So would I be surprised 
if we woke up tomorrow to news that Putin's been arrested or he's been shot, you know, not at all. Um, but him being around, you know, a year from now wouldn't surprise me either. Okay, let's move to China. Let me just start off very go ahead. No, I was gonna say let's move to an easy one. <laughs> That's right. Um, what will 2023 bring to the US China relationship? Yeah, so I think we start. 2023 with the US and China in a cold war. Uh, I don't think that's an overstatement. In fact, I think it's pretty indisputable. When China clearly chooses to maintain a strategic relationship with Russia, despite Russia's invasion of a sovereign nation, when it threatens reunification with Taiwan by any means necessary, you know, when we place tariffs on Chinese products, largely for domestic political reasons, when we deny technology to China in a bid to contain their own technology goals, we're in a Cold War. So I think that's where we're, we're starting the year. I think it's important to, to ask what's the Cold War being fought over? It's not being fought over ideology. China doesn't want to export communism or even its own version of authoritarianism. You know, it's not a Cold War being fought over territory, you know, outside of Taiwan, South China Sea, a couple of border disputes. China does not have territorial ambitions. Rather, I think the Cold War is being fought over technology supremacy that will define future economic and military supremacy, you know, and it's being fought over political influence around the world. You know, China does not want to use that influence that it has in other countries for a global common, you know, like the way we have. And I really believe that. But rather, it wants to use that influence solely for its own narrow economic interests. You know, it wants to be able simply by its economic might to dictates too strong a word. So I'll use influence again to influence countries around the world to choose economic policies that are in China's you know, strategic interests. And my guess, Michael, is that we'll end 2023 deeper in that Cold War than we're starting. You know, I think the forces that have brought us here, you know, nationalism in China and politics here in the U.S. are just too strong for there to be any other outcome. This is all going to come at a cost. You know, it's going to come at a cost to the global economy. Globalization had much more economic benefits than costs. And the reverse of globalization, you know, call it decoupling, which is going to be a big part of this Cold War, is going to come at an economic price. It's going to put some of our allies in an uncomfortable position. And it's going to put some U.S. companies, you know, who do business in China in an increasingly uncomfortable position. So that's kind of where we are. We'll be right back with more of this special conversation between Michael Allen and Michael Morrell after this short break. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So, for years now, and appropriately so, we've been worried that we were falling behind the Chinese. At a minimum, they were catching up with us. I'm wondering whether you subscribe to some of the new thinking out there that says, you know what, the Chinese are not 10 feet tall like we used to see. They have structural economic issues, demographic issues. And because Xi Jinping and his zeal for the party has killed the golden goose, he's overregulated the economy. Do you put any stock in that or do you think they're still winning? Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. I do. So I buy in to the Hal Brand's argument that China is no longer a rising power, but rather a peaking one. You know, Hal lists three reasons why China is no longer a rising power, right? First is the huge systemic challenges they face, demographics, debt, you know, among others. Second is the, what you just mentioned, right, is the slowdown and even reversal of economic reform. This is the goose, right, that killed the golden egg, or this is killing the goose that play the golden egg. And third is the fact that the world is beginning to stand up to China and to say no to its policies that are inconsistent with the rules-based order that most of the world wants to live in. To Hal's three points, I would add a fourth, which is, I think that China, we're going to see increasingly sclerotic policymaking in Beijing as Xi's preference for rule of life gets in the way of what was once a great Chinese strength, which was a change in leadership every five or 10 years that brought new people, new ideas, fresh fresh approaches to policymaking. China's losing that, right? So I think you look at all of that and and Hal's argument, you know, that they're a peaking power makes sense. The caveat I would put on it is that doesn't necessarily change our current situation with China because China has grown so strong and so confident and so aggressive, right, over the last 10 years that we have to deal with this country, right? And as Hal argues very persuasively, I think, right, them being a peaking power actually makes them more dangerous in the short run, right, if they feel they have less time. Right. Michael, what about Taiwan? We can't have a conversation without discussing them. Most timelines say something general of it gets more dangerous the longer we get in the decade. I hear people within the government always saying 2027 is the time frame that we're most worried about. First of all, let me just ask you bluntly, do you think that Xi Jinping is going to go for it? Not anytime soon is the direct answer to that. Michael, as you know, there's been a ton of rhetoric regarding Taiwan in both Beijing and Washington over the last couple of years, more last year than the year before. 
lot of increasingly aggressive military exercises by China, quite frankly, aggressive political moves by Washington, Speaker Pelosi's trip, multiple statements by the president, you know, walking back from our longtime policy regarding defending Taiwan, you know, all of which have raised tension in the Straits over the past couple of years. And I expect all of that to continue in 2023. You know, I'd note that since the Pelosi trip, China, you know, is now at a new normal in terms of military exercises vis-a-vis Taiwan. Um, There's a higher tempo, more aggressive level than we saw before the trip. And I don't think that's going to change. But despite all that tension, you know, I do not believe that China is going to initiate an attack on Taiwan in 2023 or anytime soon after that. There's one caveat to that, which is China would, I believe, respond militarily to a major policy mistake in either Taipei or Washington. You know, say Taiwan declares independence or say we walk away from our one China policy, neither of which I expect to happen. But if one of those two mistakes were made, then I believe China would would respond militarily. What's the best way to kind of think about Xi's thinking on Taiwan? I think, you know, a former CIA China analyst who I really respect, John Culver, um, really one of the best in the business, has coined a phrase, which I think is exactly right. John says, you know, for Xi at this point, Taiwan is a crisis to be avoided, not an opportunity to be gained. And I think there's there's really a couple of reasons for that. One is she has big domestic issues that he needs to attend to. Most importantly, you know, ensuring that China can continue to grow its economy and ensuring that China avoids the middle income trap, right? Solving those systemic problems we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is going to determine his legacy more than anything else, right? If Chinese growth goes south under his watch, that is what will be on his tombstone. If he succeeds in making China rich, then that's his legacy. And second, and I think this is really important, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, is China is not yet prepared to attack Taiwan at a high enough level of confidence of success. Right. And attacking Taiwan and losing would probably be the end of the road for any Chinese leader. So he's deterred. It's too big of a gamble. He's, he's exactly, that is exactly the point. He's deterred right now. What do they need to have more confidence? They need more amphibious lift to move troops across the straits. They need more nuclear weapons so that they can be seen by us as being able to go toe-to-toe with us on the nuclear front in a Taiwan crisis. And they need enough economic decoupling from us so that China could more easily weather broad-based U.S. sanctions, you know, that would follow a Chinese invasion, right? That's what I think they're trying to pursue. And I think the point about them not being ready was captured best by Xi himself, right? When When he ordered his military to be prepared to take Taiwan by force by 2027, he was admitting, right, that he has doubts that they can do it today. Yeah. So if you think about, and this is this is probably the most important point on China-Taiwan. So what's the right policy approach for the United States? And you said it, focus on deterrence, right? Focus on ensuring that in 2027, 2030, 2035, you know, whatever year you want to pick, 
that any Chinese leader is going to continue to have real doubts about their ability to take the island. And I think that means three things. It means building our military capabilities at an aggressive pace. It means helping Taiwan build the right military cap capabilities at an aggressive pace. And it means continuing to build our coalition of allies who would be willing to stand up you know, to Chinese aggression against Taiwan. Deterrence. It's really simple. You know, my assessment of what we're doing on this front is that we're heading in the right direction, but that we're not moving fast enough and we're not moving aggressively enough. So I want to see us be more aggressive in pursuing that deterrence. So we see people all the time say another reason we need to win in Ukraine is to send a message to Xi Jinping, a demonstration effect about sanctions and just what the West can do when provoked. Do you buy that or do you think Xi Jinping is just marching to his own tune? No, I think the outcome of the war in Ukraine matters. You know, the Chinese study everything and they will study this, right? This will be in some Chinese working group, leading leading group on something, right? They'll, they'll actually study this, but they don't know the outcome yet, right? You know, we talked earlier about if the West were to pull its support from Ukraine, Russia could still win, right? And we talked about if the West gave Ukraine the, the support it's looking for, Ukraine could win and, you know, sooner than most people think. So we don't know the outcome yet, which means that China really isn't in a position to come to any conclusions. But I think it matters. The outcome in Ukraine absolutely matters to the way she thinks about Taiwan. Okay. I want to go to Iran in just a second, but were you surprised? Give me a quick answer by Xi Jinping's rapid rollback of China's anti-zero COVID policy. So this is a bit embarrassing. Surprised, no. Shocked, yes. I really thought that she would not relent and that he certainly would not want to rip the Band-Aid off all at once. So I got that wrong, right? Got to admit it, got it wrong. And I think one of the lessons here, and we sometimes forget this again, when we're looking at authoritarian countries, I think the lesson here is that public opinion in China matters. You know, it does influence policymaking. You know, I first learned about this when I was briefing President Bush in 2001, and we had the EP3 crisis in March of that year. And I learned it a couple of times since, but I keep forgetting it because it's so easy to think of Chinese leaders doing whatever they want to do. You know, one way to think about this is that if they could just do whatever they wanted to do, they would not need to use censorship and they would not need to use propaganda, right, to shape the views of its public, um, which, of course, they do every day. So public opinion in China matters, and this is a great example of it. Turns out welding your own people into their apartments is unpopular even in China. Yeah, how about that? More of Michael Morell's conversation with Michael Allen after this short break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, on Iran. Tell us about the protests that have broken out. They seem broad-based, or at least they've been ongoing, maybe not broad-based. Is it enough to bring down the regime? I think the really important point about the protests of the last several months are that they are the latest in a series of protests that have occurred since 2017. There's been a number of them. The demands of the protesters have been different each time, but there's a common theme. And the common theme is that there's a significant and growing share of Iranians, mostly young Iranians, who feel alienated, that's the right word, I think, who feel alienated from their government, who are much more modern, much more reform-minded than their leadership. That's the common theme. Having said that, right, there's also a large share of Iranians who are supportive of the regime and many Iranians who don't have a view one way or the other, right? Just like here in the United States. Current Iranian president, Raisi, um, hardliner, got 18 million votes, and he got 70% of the vote in the last presidential election. So there is support for this regime. My strong guess, Michael, is that this round of protests is not going to result um, in any significant political change. Some of the protests since 2017 have fizzled out. Some have been snuffed out. The 2019 protest was crushed by the security forces. This one, because it has involved women, and I think that really matters here, this one, because it's involved women, has been handled a bit more adroitly on their part. There's been some crackdowns. There's been some concessions. There's been some interesting work behind the scenes where they'll arrest somebody and then they'll let them out and they'll go to their family and they'll say, hey, you need to you know, make sure your kid doesn't come out in the street and protest. So they've handled this you know, in a different way because so many women involved. Right. I'd make two final points. One is that you never know when a situation can turn in a radical new direction. You know, for example, one of the key turning points in the fall of the Shaw was a 1978 theater fire that killed 400 people in Abadadan, Iran. And so you never know, right, what might happen tomorrow that could that could take this out of control. Just important point, important reminder. And second, and this is really important too, and this kind of goes with the Russia point, no one should assume that the fall of this regime would lead to an Iran that approaches the world in a very different way, right? We got to remember that just like the Iranian leadership today, the Shah wanted Iranian hegemony over the entire Middle East. The Shah was interested in the acquisition of nuclear weapons, right? So this is not just a the policies of an ideological regime. These are, you know, Persian policies that, you know, have been in place for literally hundreds of years. Fascinating. All right. I want to ask you one more question about Iran, and then I'm going to give you the off the wall, what are we not thinking about question. But let's talk about the nuclear deal. Right now, Biden says it's not happening. The State Department says it's, quote, not on the agenda right now. 
But the way I look at things is that the Iranian regime could be a threshold nuclear power. And lo and behold, you look back in Israel and Bibi Netanyahu is back in charge. And if I remember correctly, there was a lot of time spent in the second term of the Obama administration talking BB out of bombing Iran. What do you think? Do you think it's possible they're going to go to war? Great question. I think the probability of war between Iran and Israel has gone up you know, as a result of the outcome of the Israeli election, the formation of the most hardline conservative government you know, probably in Israel's history. And while the probability is still low, you know, it is for 2023, I think, the most likely place where we could see, you know, a new major war break out. I think there's two dynamics to think about when assessing the probability of an Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. One is the status of Iran's nuclear program. I think, Michael, you said something really important. You know, I think it's fair to say that Iran is closing in on what many of us have long thought its goal is, right, which is to be a threshold nuclear power. That is, right, to have the necessary pieces for a nuclear weapon and that they can put them together quickly, right? I think we're getting very close to that if we're not there already. You know, talking about this can get technical very fast, and I don't want to do that, but if Iran wanted to detonate a nuclear device in the Iranian desert for all the world to see, you know, which would change the dynamic in the region overnight, they could probably do so in a handful of months, particularly if they took some shortcuts on the nuclear weaponization work that they halted several years ago and still need to do. And the Israelis, right, know all this. They watch this more closely than they watch anything. And what's happening with the Iranian nuclear program creates an incentive for the Israelis to act, right? Creates exactly the same incentive that Netanyahu saw 10 years ago. The other dynamic, which I think pushes the Israelis in the other direction, pushes them away from military action, is that Israel still can effectively destroy all of Iran's nuclear facilities on its own. They would need the help of the United States, and I don't think the Biden administration would provide it. And without that help, the Israelis could not destroy everything they need to destroy. Iran would certainly produce a nuclear weapon in response to being attacked, and they would blame it on Israel's attack, right? And they would have that talking point you know, to use um, in the world. Therefore, I think there's voices in Israel urging caution, and there's voices in, in Israel urging or arguing that aggressive covert action rather than a military strike is the way to go in dealing with the Iranian nuclear program. So I think there's a push and pull here, you know, and we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. But I think it is absolutely the place to watch in terms of a new conflict in 2023. Okay, last question for now. What is the big thing that might – we've already talked about big issues, but what's the thing we're not thinking of? Is it another terrorist attack? I think I saw you say that on Face the Nation. Is it something about the economy? After all, I remember that you were trained as an economist at the CIA. What is the big thing that's possible that's going to happen in 2023 that we're not talking about? 
So what I said on Face the Nation was that I would not be surprised if there were a terrorist attack against a U.S. interest, right, an embassy, a military facility somewhere in the world in 2023. And I think that surprised, you know, a few people who are looking at the terrorism front as as kind of quiet, right? We don't hear about terrorism much anymore. But the truth is that terrorists around the world are bouncing back, which is not surprising because it's actually very easy for a terrorist group to rebound. Um, it's very easy to degrade them, you know, when you put pressure on them. It's very easy for them to rebound, you know, when you take that pressure off. And so terrorists are bouncing back. And nowhere is that more true than in Africa, where Al Qaeda and ISIS, you know, occupy vast swaths of territory and where where they terrorize and they brutalize civilians. Two of Al Qaeda's five major hubs are there. Half of ISIS's affiliates are in Africa. These groups are acquiring military equipment, weapons, explosives, drones. You know, so far there hasn't been an attack against US interests, but there certainly could be. There's an ISIS resurgence going on in the Middle East, which is not getting a lot of news, but there's been four major ISIS attacks in Iraq since mid-December. Again, not against U.S. interests, but that could change. And then there's Afghanistan. You know, we know that the emir of al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and his deputy and the top recruiter are all in Afghanistan. The even bigger problem now in Afghanistan is ISIS. It's thriving. It's conducting frequent high-profile attacks there. And what's particularly worrying about ISIS in Afghanistan is that they're recruiting fighters from neighboring countries. And of course, that raises the concern that those foreign fighters could return to their home countries, right, and conduct attacks against Western interests. So, you know, all this is happening, right, Michael, at a time when we're taking our foot off the counterterrorism gas pedal as we focus on Russia, Ukraine. You know, there's resources flowing away from counterterrorism. I know that we're walking away from some important foreign partnerships. I've had representatives of foreign governments, you know, complain to me about that, uh, that they're worried about that. So I'd say terrorism is something to worry about in 2023 that most people might not be thinking about. Michael, thanks so much for doing this today. I think it was uh, terrifically entertaining. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.